Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing James Elkins and Erna Fiorentini about their new book, Visual Worlds, Looking, Images, Visual Disciplines, which was published by Oxford University Press in early 2020. Dr. Elkins is the E.C. Chadbourne Chair in the Department of Art History, Theory, and Criticism at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. His numerous books include The Object Stares Back on the Nature of Seeing, Master Narratives and Their Discontents, How to Use Your Eyes, What Painting Is, On Pictures and the Words That Fail Them, and My personal favorite, Pictures and Tears, A History of People Who Have Cried in Front of Paintings, and these are but a very select few. Dr. Fiorentini teaches at the Institute for the History of Art and Architecture of the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology in Germany. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including one from the German Research Foundation for Outstanding Scholarly Achievements, and she has edited two volumes, one entitled On Visualization, a multi-centric critique from, excuse me, a multi-centric critique beyond infographics, and the other called Observing Nature, Representing Experience, the Osmotic Dynamics of Romanticism, 1800 to 1850. The book they wrote, which we'll be discussing today, provides a full introduction to the visual world across all fields that theorize it. In contrast with typical visual culture texts, it looks beyond the arts, taking a comparative approach that considers quite a number of fields, including art history and theory, but also epistemology, ontology, vision science, neurology, cognitive cytology, law and advertising, medicine, warfare, and more. Visual Worlds is, to say the least, an astounding accomplishment. To say that it covers a wide range of topics is a terrible understatement. What Jim and Erna have achieved in this introductory textbook is remarkable. It provides thick discussions of different modes of looking, and the examples explored in the text range widely, from traditional artworks to the physics of candle flames to the visualization of neurons and well beyond. I'm very excited to discuss this book with them, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Jim Elkins and Erna Fiorentini, welcome to the show. Hi. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. I'm so glad that we're able to have you today. Thanks for taking the time out. So I wonder if you might each begin by telling us a bit about yourself, where you were born, where you attended graduate school, how you kind of became interested in the visual worlds that you discuss in the book. Just give us both uh, your background, some of your background, if you would. Erna, what begins? <laughs> the ladies first. Okay, just there. because I'm the only one who's not American here in the round. So I'm, I'm Italian, actually, based in Germany at the moment. and But I'm, I've been born in Italy, in Udine, somewhere between Venice and Trieste. Uh, there's the town where James Joyce lived short before he died. So somehow, perhaps, who is known in, in the U.S., and uh, I studied in, Tri- in Trieste, actually. I've, I've been, uh, I went to school in Udine and I've been studying in Trieste, beginning with the geological study, um, then which I pursued later in Bonn in Germany, which was at that time uh, the German capital as I began to, to study there. And I was actually a scientific directed person from my family, 
and I I pursued this career as a I made a PhD in Bonn as a geochemist in um, isotopic geochemistry, and I always interlaced this kind of interest, scientific interest with um, with um, interest in the humanities, in art, in architecture, in architecture and archaeology. And it was in Bonn where I could uh, interlace these two interests somehow. Uh, and I did pursue a PhD in art history and archaeology in Bonn at the same time, parallel to my geochemistry study studies. So um, it was very interesting. I, I was under supervision of um, Gunther Schweikart, who was one of, uh, of the scholars of uh, early Renaissance, and um, Justus Müller-Ofsted is perhaps known somewhere in the U.S. as one of the, of the leading, um, former leading scholars in um, uh, uh, Netherlands uh, art uh, of the 17th century, mostly Rembrandt. And Nicholas Himmelmann was was one of the leading archaeologists at that time who, who was con, um, concerned with um, um, uh, classical sculptures um, and uh, and it was one of my mentors, if you want, because he was very um, very severe in his. Um, um, in his ideas about how to study archaeologists and how to be an archaeologist. So all those different directions where my, um, my points, um, my anchors during uh, my studying time. And, and so I brought both of those directions in, um, in working of, um, uh, in, in archaeometry, which is something connecting the humanities and, and scientific directions, but I I was somehow more interested in, in theoretical or methodical questions, methodical issues. So it was stronger than connecting the two direction of the humanities and the sciences in in archaeometry and it, in in art history or the Bildwissenschaften. It was easier to accomplish. This kind of methodical or theoretical um, commitment, if you want, and so I continued to work in art history and the Bildwissenschaft in Berlin at the Freie Universität together with Werner Busch, and then and together with uh, Lorraine Daston at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, and we made a lot of interesting project together, connecting art and science somehow, and and so. Um, I, I was able to connect these two roots, art and science, uh, the humanities and epistemology somehow in the history of science, connecting art, history and the history of science. And so I went to the Humboldt Universität in Berlin. I was there in the department of Horst-Bredekamp, I think it's the name, who is also known in the US and one of the first who was interested in this correlation between art and science and this interaction of art and science, but, but also in the interaction of the humanities with science. And now, well, uh, the KIT, the Karlsruhe Institute of Technologies, is a sort of congenial environment for me, for my interdisciplinary work and I, I think it's the best place to be at the moment. I have uh, together in the department of mit, uh, with Inge Hinterwaldner, who is uh, one of those uh, young thinkers, I would say. Yeah, she's great. She's great. And she's really committed to this entanglement of uh, art history, Bildwissenschaft, sciences, with a strong relation uh, and interest in the new media and computer imaging, and, and we are setting up sort of larger hub for visualization studies at um, currently at the KIT in Karlsruhe. Jim, what about you? <laughs> Background? Yeah, so well, that I mean, I don't have an, I don't have a, a kind of a, an <laughs> academic pedigree for interdisciplinarity that goes back in that way. I mean, my, it's, I think, I think. 
I feel like I we owe, uh, I, at least I feel like I owe, I always owe listeners an apology or an excuse for not being phobic about science, about science. And for me, so it's not, it's not so much the places that I studied as an adult, it's more or less my childhood that did that for me. Because, so I grew up in Ithaca, New York, that's where Cornell is. Um, and my father was a dentist. He was um, a, a Jewish boy from Brooklyn who escaped Brooklyn and made it out to the wilds of upstate New York, you know, only five hours from New York, but any, anyway, the wilds. And he, he got very um, engaged with his new environment. Um, he, our house was often completely filled with things that he had brought in from outdoors to try to identify so that every surface would always often filled with things like birds nests that needed to be identified. The species of the bird needed to be identified and mushrooms that were drying and waiting for some expert to come in and, um, you know, and, and, and validate his attempt to identify them. And, and we, he collected and identified plants. We learned their Latin names, things like that. So I had a real kind of pseudo Ruskinian kind of, <laughs> kind of <a laughs> natural 19th century style. I, I don't, I don't, I've never known how to characterize it exactly. It was really a bit out of time and place, but I had a very strange, uh, unusual childhood in that regard. But basically then um, never, never felt alienated from science uh, for that reason. And my sister's a scientist, and and uh, it's that it's uh, it's something that could have easily happened to me. <laughs> so again, my my uh, studies in college were were math and art history, and it was just a little chance that sent me to the art history side instead of math. So that's my way of saying that um, I I've I've always been interested in these things, but it wasn't until our collaboration that I actually managed to do something about it. Mm-hmm. I mean. Little bits and pieces of science, sure, of course, had gotten into things that I've that I've written. Um, but the thing in our book that made it through from my earliest childhood all the way into the book is a chapter that we have about halfway through the book um, called "How to Look at a Sunset." Mm-hmm. And actually, our our sources for that for that chapter are um, are some really interesting German meteorologists from the 1920s. But 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 my source is actually observing sunsets with that kind of um, amateur scientist eye when I was a kid, um, and trying to see what people had said about the clouds and the shapes of clouds and the and the ways that the atmosphere works and things like that from the point of view of a whatever like a ten year old or something like that. But those kind of things have stayed with me. So I mean. Aaron has been extremely uh, good, you know, collaborator in many, many ways. But one of them is to make sure that I that I that I um, that I have root that I have <laughs> to make sure that I stay connected to the twenty first century and, and, <laughs> and, not, and not keep drifting back into some kind of well Ruskin past or something like that. Well, I, I appreciate you both sharing this this background. You know, I think partly I love doing these interviews because we we don't get to hear so much about sort of you know childhood things like you were just describing and and no, Erna, academics the, are never asked those questions. I and I love asking yeah. them, and I, I think those who listen to the show and and understand the format that we have we really kind of enjoy getting a sense of those things because scholars don't just become who we are suddenly. You know, in graduate school as the lightning hits our, our head. We, we are a product of, you know, our backgrounds in Italy, our training in Germany, our Ruskinian sort of upbringing in upstate New York and things like that. I'm glad, Except Jim, that, that you... Oh, please go I, ahead. Sorry, I was just going to just gonna say, I think that there's, there's actually a lot of a lot that you could go into here. You could do an entire conference on this because I think a certain fairly high percentage of art historians are actually have as their formative moment their first trip to say, Amsterdam when they were eight or something like that, you know, or for an American, like maybe their high school trip or something like that. So because true. that's what stays with you. And, and, you know, it gets, it gets sometimes buried and forgotten, but you can read through to it sometimes in the work of some art historians. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll be looking forward to you organizing that conference. <laughs> that's a, that sounds like definitely <laughs> something nice that, to try. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in this, you know, kind of virtual zoom format where we, we refeel, I think a little bit more informal and we're in each other's homes and with students in their homes in these kind of odd ways. But I'm glad you mentioned the sunset chapter 
That was definitely one of, of my favorites, though. Where, where we sort of dig into the book in terms of access points, you all certainly provide a lot. And I want to give our listeners a sense of what's in this book. But maybe as a buildup to that, I can just kind of ask, how did you come to write Visual Worlds? And how did you come to write it together? Did this start as an idea that one of you had that you brought to the other? Was it always collaborative? As I was reading it, I just I kept thinking, how did they do this? I mean, how did you do it both in terms of how you wrote it, but where did it come from as a book and as a textbook specifically? No, because you, were, you, you have been the first. You asked me. You begin. You begin. I didn't actually even remember that I asked you. I think, I think it you might see, be. I it, was it, my, my, it was very important. I'm very proud of it. So I, it was, I was advertising this way. Jim Atkins asked me to write a book with him. So. <laughs> I, I actually don't remember that. I think it might be, it might be useful and, uh, for some of your listeners to know that, you, that this is a really successful collaboration that we have. And people in the humanities don't collaborate as often as they should. I had a one of my dissertation supervisors, Barbara Stafford, used to say that the reason why people in the humanities never collaborate is because the conceit that we all have, that we know everything. And unless you can get past that, <laughs> you can't actually collaborate. You have to actually True. admit that your, your yeah. knowledge is limited. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm not the one to fill in the details of this, but, I, but uh, in terms of the way that the collaboration has worked, it's been, it's been pretty amazing. The entire unbelievable length of time it took, which was, I think, six years more or less. Wow. It's, it, it's, it's been pretty amazing. And, and it could, I also want to give some like hope to people who are thinking of collaborating in the age of COVID. Um, this was before COVID, of course, and finished before COVID, but um, it could have been during COVID because we only met face to face a couple of times. Hmm. Um, and yet it was completely seamless. Um, and these are all, uh, you know, multiply edited, multiply co-authored, you know, I mean, many times co-authored <laughs> and revised chapters. Um, so that in terms of the way that the collaboration worked, I think it was great, really great. And then I, I, I can't remember exactly how it got started, but I could say that my own, my own impetus to do this was, um, the way I like to say it is for me anyway, it was ethical because I feel like there's a, I feel like there's an awful lot of rhetoric about how, you know, our age is the most visual age ever. Um, and we think through images and we, you know, we understand the world through images and all the rest of that. And yet almost nobody tries to actually put together something that first year college students could, could look at to, to, to try to understand that. I feel like it was kind of an ethical obligation to at least try. And I think one of the reasons that people, that very few people try this is simply because the visual world, as it were, whatever metaphor we want to use, is too enormous to think of compressing in the way that we did. So that makes the collaboration especially um, miraculous because we managed to not chafe too much at the inevitable, those inevitable moments when things had to be compressed and to be as inclusive as possible at the same time. Erna, do you want to say this any is, more that, that Jim doesn't remember uh, yes. about the, the book? <laughs> there, there are many, there are many points because uh, um, as as to the the time it took to to write this book, we we had two years uh, in between, some somewhere between twenty twelve and twenty fourteen, uh, uh, fourteen, where we were not we, we came to a sort of um, of stop having written a lot already. And then some, so I, I, I try to do some archaeology of our emails uh, for my students because we had one seminar about the book. And so I found, found some mails about uh, thinking, should, should we continue at all? Because we, we had ideas, but somehow this, this, this kind of ethical impetus came to a stasis. I, I don't know why. And in Somewhere, somewhere, um, there was um, a stop, and I think it was just one mail. One time, you wrote, Jim. You wrote, um, I don't know exactly who. It, if we, sh I should continue to write. We should continue to write. And I told, I told you this, this kind of ethical un answers. I think, I think we should because because no other one would do it this way. And somehow that we 
overcome we have we have overcome this uh, this um this point of of difficulty but i did i don't know the uh the, the genesis of this um of uh of this moment of difficulty in well, creation i don't know exactly how what, what it was but it was there i don't remember those i don't remember those emails but for me anyway the the moments in which it seemed especially difficult to figure out how to go forward had to do with this issue of compression so like Perhaps. in that in that in that chapter how to look at a sunset we have like i said a couple of wonderful sources from the 1920s they were fun they're interesting there is some science there's some meteorology involved uh, and you can describe it in the very short chapters that we had allowed ourselves by partitioning up the book, you know, and des- deciding how short the chapters had to be. We could do it. But then another chapter, which which I imagine that we might touch on a bit, is uh, one how, how to look at a painting. Well, okay, that's several lifetimes worth of literature that that no art historian has, has, has read all of. And how are you going to put that into the same like three or four or five pages of, of text? So, there were moments like that when it seemed like compression itself had reached a breaking point. Um, and then there were other moments also for me when um, we, we, had, we were perpetually reorganizing this book. Um, and uh, there were moments when it did seem to me like, uh, and, and sorry, I should say, so one of the themes in the book is playing off the possibility of the, that there might be several subjects in this book against the idea that there is a single subject, visuality, which is what visual culture studies usually assumes but playing that off against the fact that there are many specific kinds of seeing. And for me, at least, there were also moments when I thought, okay, it's really um, the latter that is the case. There are many different kinds of seeing, and they don't belong in one book. And they really, they really can't be organized. There really isn't, there really is no central coherence there. And we, and we have bitten off more than we can chew, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. So, and those are, those are still, you know, inflection points in the text for sure we just you know i think we've set it up so that uh, every reader encountering the book can discover whether or not they w- wish to agree with us on these points of compression mm-hmm. and of coherence mm-hmm. well, but i think, I think I, you know, one oh sorry no please go ahead yes yeah, so just thinking about it, the question of compression and what the, the reader may look for in the book is what it was one of, uh, of our concern to reorganize these diff- different matters in the book continuously, right? If you remember, Jim, as of our TOC, what it, it continuous change somehow. We you you also uh, put it on on your account uh, on your Facebook account with a real time connection. So when we were changing anything in the TOC, it was at the same time published uh, on on the Facebook um, or, or on on your website. I don't know. I don't remember well. Uh, so it was a sort of, uh, of, of sense of commitment in doing something someone could perhaps read at the same moment, mm-hmm. and we wanted to reorganize. We have reorganized all the all the different chapters uh, following different logics. I think. And it was one of the, of the most. I was astonished about this way of working worked between us. It, just, it was it was it a sort of growing together while writing. Jim introduced this idea of online writing, right, which is normal today, I suppose. <laughs> well, I don't know, but I still uh, do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I, I thought, well, how should we do? Each of, of us would write chapter and then put them together no we we worked continuously in the latter time on on those chapter according to the logic of the toc and so it was really interesting to see that it's, it's possible i don't think it's possible for everyone it was sort of congenial constellation between us in writing this way Erna, I'm glad you mentioned Jim working in this method, and I do want to jump in and and give listeners more of a sense of the structure of the book. But Jim, before we move off of that, do you want to say a little bit about this writing live that you do? It's on your website, or is it also on Facebook? Uh, we, we did a bit of that with this book. Yeah, this, the writing live idea is basically sometimes things are actually live. So we have a Google Doc, like for the table of contents for a while. That was actually live so that if we typed on it, someone could have been looking at that and then commenting. Uh, but other things are, are not quite live. Um, 
I put a couple of drafts of chapters um, online while we were when before they were finished and invited comments. And I don't actually remember if any of those comments that I got online um, ended up in the book, but they have certainly have done for my other projects. And and in that case, I just thank the person who appeared from nowhere in social media uh, and let them look at the text that and the, and the you know and the had the notice of them and and their and their paraphrase of their words and make sure it's okay with them. Um, and so it produces a little bump in the text for a reader because then you come across a line like reading an early draft of this, so-and-so suggested that, which is an unusual thing to read in a book, but it's the only way to be fair to acknowledge people. Yeah, but very in general, unusual. The, the, this book, I think we was helped along a lot by that kind of thing mm-hmm. um, because the book has so many different disciplines that intersect it. And I think it, it um, I, I know you want to. I know you want to actually tell people what's in the book, but I just also want to say before you do that that one of the nice things about having finally actually finished this is that I feel like organi- I could organize anything now. The 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 the, the existing readers of visual culture studies and visual studies and, and and things like that are so simple by comparison because you have their their the issues of gender and identity and so on that drive those and the and the uh, questions of um, social relations in art history and history are part of our project, but also the, our project has disciplines that usually just don't absolutely don't play a role at all in those kinds of uh, introductions. Yeah, I'm. You've you've segued perfectly for me to say just a little bit. I mean, I, I don't think it's possible to say all that's in this book. In fact, I, I kept coming up with different questions to ask you both about, you know, how would you describe with this book and and what's in this book and what you cover? And I don't think it's possible, even just looking at the table of contents, I'd, a person couldn't really get a sense of, as I said in the introduction, how thick this book is with so many different ideas, so many different theories and themes and references to other the work of other scholars and philosophers and theoreticians, um, maybe I'll just say, just in terms of wetting the appetite of listeners to get this book, which I hope so many listening do, um, whether it's ordering it from the library or ordering a copy, you know, this just needs to be in as many students' hands and graduate students' hands, I think, as possible. But um, I will say, because I wasn't sure picking it up, how you how you handled it in terms of the co-authorship, that it is completely undecipherable who wrote what and and the, right. there was a bit of magic in terms of trying because I'm especially familiar with Jim's writing in art history and I, I already said a little bit about the number of books he's written so I really thought I would be able to tell who wrote what and I was not the way you've written this is so tightly stitched together there's only one moment in the introduction when you speak in your own voices and you yeah, you know make it right. clear why you're weaving it together in this way and then Oof, it's it's just it is absolutely both of yours, and it's really it's something to behold in that regard. That's that's really really nice of you to say. And and now I want to interrupt you one more time to say that no, that please. little bit in the introduction. Um, the the notion there was we gave we each we each allowed ourselves like a page to say the kinds of um, the kinds of interests that we had, um, thinking that they would presumably be partly intermittently visible through the book. Um, but basically only in, from my point of view, the main function of that was not to create a kind of a detective game for readers or anything like that. <laughs> the, 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 the basic idea was to, um, was to uh, disabuse readers of the idea that you could um, divide the book into, into threads in that way. Yeah, I mean, I have guesses, but I really quickly stopped doing that and and thought, why am it? Why even am I trying to seek out who wrote what? It was it was interesting as a reader to to grapple with that. So you know how, the book, sorry, I'm, not, I'm, I'm compulsively interrupting you now. <laughs> it's, like, it's fine. One of the one of the negative models that I had in mind. Uh, I don't know, Erin, how much you were thinking of it was the book Art Since 1900 as a negative model because one of the things that happens in that book is they. It's supposed to be multiply authored with four authors in their case, well, yeah. four and, and a couple of largely uncredited women authors, by the way, but it four main authors it's supposed to be. But if you if you if you look very carefully, they have several tables of contents spread through that book. And at the end of the chapter descriptions in those uh, in those distributed tables of contents, they have initials. And that's okay. how you can actually yeah. tell who wrote the chapters, mm. which I thought was very egocentric and coy and inappropriate and distracting all at once uh, and really should have been omitted. 
So sorry, go yeah, ahead. This is out oh. of an, an anthology, which is which our book is not. And I yeah. think I have learned a lot from from this kind of working now and profiting from from that because I'm working in the same way with other people now in setting up an application for 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 projects, uh, working exactly as we did uh, from my side, working together with the other people and and pulling them. In, in this kind of writing, not anthological, but cooperative, which was my first experience with, with you, and it was extremely um, uh, enriching. Um, I just, I, I want to try as much as possible to, to give listeners a sense of, so the book is organized into seven overarching parts, and then within the overarching parts are individual chapters that I think are, are, are so bite, like perfectly bite sized in the sense that as dense as the material often is. And, and there are some parts where even I just thought, wow, I, I'm going to have to reread this. I mean, this is, this just is moving through so, with such intensity, uh, so many different theories. And it's all so fascinating. I mean, I, I found myself almost being embarrassed by how often I was writing in the margin. Wow, so interesting. Oh my, fascinating. I mean, I, I felt like a, I don't know, like a student again in terms of especially the more scientific material that, as Jim has pointed out, is so often unfamiliar to us art historians, or we know about it vaguely, but we don't know the scholarship, certainly. We haven't really dug into, you know, theories about animals, theories about how the military looks at images, all, all these elements. So um, all I can say is just to give a sense that it is very readable, as thick as it is. I keep using that word, but you really partitioned off the sections so that they are digestible and so that they are, um, I think, handleable by or manageable by students and by those who might teach from this book, which is, I think, I think where I'd like to go next, if I could ask you both about you, it's a recurring theme in this book, the transparency you have about the fact that this is a book that it is meant to be used in the classroom, that it is in some sense, perhaps something that will replace uh, or, or be a different option, let's say, the standard art appreciation textbooks or intro to visual culture, which you know, I teach that in, in a very large size classroom with sometimes more than 100 students. And those textbooks do tend to be almost so facile, it's painful for students. I mean, that what is a line? What is a square? You know, this idea that it's kind of art history light or, or survey light, where you just kind of go through um, the, the major periods in art, showing them one or two examples, all of which are derived from the fine arts. You both are so strongly countering this notion that that is how we should teach um, these classes where we have so many different kinds of students. I know in art appreciation, I have engineers of various kinds, petroleum engineers in Louisiana, electrical engineers. I've got nurses, I've got anthropology students, you know. I think they are the 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 hungry audience that you are talking about when you talk about this well, book opening a conversation. So can you talk about how you envision this being used in the classroom, how much that ethical imperative you spoke of drove the way that you organized it and wrote it, the topics you covered, just kind of take it in whatever direction well, one, you want. Well, one, one aspect of that anyway um, is the Part of what this textbook is supposed to do is hopefully, fingers crossed, replace at least a small percentage of the freshman introduce, introduction to visual culture type of courses. Um, the kind that um, Tom Mitchell, WJT Mitchell, says that he was the first to teach uh, freshman classes on what's now called visual studies. Um, because in the sense that those classes um, take as their central gambit the notion that you can teach um, visuality, the politics um, and the history of, uh, of, of kinds of visuality in such a way that you, you give the students a kind of a toolbox to encounter any kind of visual practice. Um, and it's basically a toolbox that has uh, elements of ideological critique and, and social critique in it. And um, then when they go off in their separate directions, they can then apply these things to their fields. But what I had noticed about classes like that is that the students, as you say, that are in them who are going into different fields, a chemistry major, that kind of thing, that they end up 
not thinking about the material from that freshman class anymore once they get into their field because it doesn't have the specificity that's necessary in order to have an actual utility use value um, in, a, in a given discipline. So one of the seven sections of our book is about different disciplines. You mentioned um, how the military looks at images. That one in particular, I was thinking of as a response to some people in visual studies like um, Nicholas Mirzoff, for example, has written a lot about military industrial complex and, uh, and images, but nothing, um, nothing with, the, with the specificity of different kinds of visual apparatuses that are used, for, exa- for example, in missile nose cones and things like that. Nothing of that specificity would, that would allow a visual analysis to go forward. And it, 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 it enables an ideological analysis. So the other chapters in that section, how, the, how doctors look at images, um, how lawyers look at images, how scientists look at images, how art historians look at images, that last one is meant to, you know, in, in, to show that we're willing to you know, <laughs> compress our own field in some sort of outlandish fashion. But the idea there for me was um, um, to um, propose specificities that are in often, often uh, linked to specific technologies. In the case of medicine, for example, the da Vinci machine that, that, that allows remote, uh, remote operations on patients, that kind of thing to introduce a kind of specificity that would keep these ideas alive as uh, students go into their various fields. Right. I think it's one, one of the strengths uh, of the book that you can use it. Um, well, you can use it as a toolbox for different uh, sorts of, of teaching, different sorts of learning, right? It's interesting to see that the book as Probably people at other has um, have other expectations in the U.S. than in Europe, and we have made one experiment now uh, at um, K- um, KIT and in Berlin with the with this connected seminar uh, with the Humboldt University, trying to analyze the book such and to use the book in the same in, at, at the same uh, moment. Um, and so very much we, we have classes very mixed, um, uh, people from the humanities and from medicine. You remember, Jim, perhaps this one radiologist in Berlin yep, yep. And, uh, and then one historian of science and so on. And, and they were asked to, to think about that book as a book for learning, because it's not usual in Europe to use textbook in uh, not not in art history uh, mostly, and and so it's a, it was a inter- an interesting experiment to see that the student n- needed a problem. And so the problem of the book, vision and seeing and looking at the problem of the book through the through the book and in those singular particular chapters where they. They dived. They were able to dive in and and be concerned with this topic, this one disciplinary topic, and and then at the end we could we tried to put them together and to to search the link between these chapters. And so I, I think this this was one of the ideas, not perhaps at the beginning, but the idea uh, growing while writing, right? Then you, you can use the book in singular chapters. We say it at the, the beginning, how to use this book, but you can put a problem for the book. I did it in, in the last seminar. And and, and students um, were well accomplished this, this kind of duty and say, okay, we learned something about um, the disciplines is about the militaries, how the militaries look at images, about how um, vision is defined in medicine. Uh, but we try to, to bring all those chapters together under the big problem of vision or of looking or of how the visual disciplines are acting in themselves and with each other. So it was very interesting. I think it will be an interesting, interesting issue to to um, observe how the book will be used in the U.S. and how it will be used um, in Europe. Uh, Omar Nazim, you know him, Jim, in Regensburg. He's an historian uh, okay. of science. Omar Nazim. He's uh-huh. uh, he's going to use. Uh, he's an historian of science. 
and he told me, well, it's wonderful to use this book for for his sake, not only in the um, scientific, with the scientific chapters, but very much as a whole, uh, where to to navigate through. And it's interesting to see who who is adopting this book in Europe. Yeah, which is probably be... in in another in an, in another way than um, than in the US because no 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 one of those uh, telling me about the book wants to use the book as a pre-graduate guide, but as a book as a reading book as a theory exactly. book. Yeah, I mean, in in the best of all possible worlds, it would have been possible to take a, a magic wand and wave it over the book and turn it into a graduate level monograph. Because uh, the people in you know postgraduate graduate level don't look at textbooks as things that might be of interest, um, and this one is definitely a textbook because that was always and is its primary purpose. But but it is. Um, Absolutely and thoroughly very self-reflective and self-doubting, this textbook and the, that we've written. It's, uh, the, we, we have seven themes that we use to, to try to, to, um, to keep alive through the entire book. We list them at the beginning. We come back to them at the end, these seven themes. And the, the first one is we call the impossible textbook. Um, and the second one, the variety of seeing, goes to that point of whether or not this is one subject or actually seeing is, is multiple subjects and shouldn't be united. So these are not um, settled questions. The book is therefore absolutely readable at the graduate level. Uh, it proposes these problems, philosophic problems, questions of interdisciplinarity and things. However, it has text boxes and things like that, which professionals are allergic to because they think that they're beyond <laughs> them. And so, so that's why I say if we had a magic wand, it would have been nice to wave it over it and then dissolve all the textbooks and produce another book, which would have been the, had the exact same content but would have looked like a serious monograph and would have definitely engaged at the graduate level. And in terms of like the, the intended public, I think our editors um, at Oxford were always more sanguine, at least than I was, about how much this would be adopted uh, in the States. Um, these textbooks undergo a really, really exhausting vetting. And this, this one went out in the form of questionnaires to a number of instructors, you know, would you adopt a book like this? And, and they got enough positive responses to, you know, to fund us. And, you know, so we, so we could write the book, but I really have my doubts because I, I still a picture now the way I did, you know, seven years ago, I still imagine a potential textbook adopter who teaches a freshman class in in in, in visuality or visual culture or art history. I imagine them uh, in a in a at the College Art Association conference, looking at it, opening it, and to a page that shows some sort of like a graph, a picture of neurons, and think, "Oh my God, <laughs> I'm never going to teach this." <laughs> right? Close the book yeah. and walk away. <laughs> right? This is the yeah. way I still imagine it. I think it is daunting to some extent, though Though I do think maybe you're overestimating how daunting it is to open to one of those pages and and see, you're right, you know, from a teaching perspective, it's always going to be, you want to be the expert in the room. I mean, you want to, to feel like what you are about to, to lecture or discuss with your students is something that, that you're some sort of authority on. And and this book is so obviously the 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 summation of a lifetime on on two people's lifetimes of scholarship and reading. And, you know, as you were just talking, both of you now and, and thinking through how this might be used in the classroom and your hopes for it and the differences pedagogically between Europe and, and America, I, I couldn't help but think that maybe what I was trying to latch onto the whole time I was reading it, I was reading it as a professor who hopes for books like this. I mean, who really looks out for what, what is the future of the field and and what role will I play in bringing in lawyers and criminal justice majors and engineers and scientists who who I think you're right need to understand the density of the 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 principles of visuality in in especially our world especially as much as that's a, a cliche but I almost think this would be a great book to be on every PhD comprehensive exam reading list, because they're really, nice you know, as, as awful as that would be to have your, yeah, to have your advisor put that this on your list and say, well, you need to read this. It brings some sort of awareness uh, to all of these different theories and things that 
I think graduate students in especially art history, but other fields would, would need to be aware of. It's almost like we need to be daunted by the amount that we are not taking in. And this book introduces you to the lifetime you're going to have to spend to truly understand what the needs of our students are and maybe what the future of the field might look like. So I don't Anna, know if why, either. Why didn't we get? We should, Anna, We should have gotten Allison to write something for the back cover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, Jim, I'm not. Anyway, I'm, I'm not a big enough deal to. to but my name on the back of the book wouldn't help sell it, unfortunately. Yet, but you know, I, I just, I maybe the reason I do this podcast and and read books like this and want to talk to scholars like you is because I I do want to introduce the world to a much larger extent, and podcasts I think are one of these mediums to the amazing work that scholars like you two are are doing that they that we just you know we might not otherwise um, be be on the radar of people who who have deep interests in visual culture and visuality and visual worlds I mean all the different ways that you talk about that you can kind of describe the subject in this book I think I think Sorry, can I add something to that? Please do. I'm not managing your time, so I'm not really sure. But, but um, I've got add, it. Don't worry, I'll keep it an eye. Okay, just to add one thing to that, that the um, I think we're both very aware of the fact that even though um, even though art history has a broad reach, we are at in one corner of the quad of the university, as it were. Um, you know that it's a. Uh, it's a sad thing about um, universities in the last hundred years or so that you can say you you got a degree from such and such a university when actually you probably just got a degree in what was taught in one building in one corner of the quad in one part of campus, and the, that goes for art history and every all the other humanities as well and um, and and social sciences and so on and. The, we end up this textbook, this, our part seven, I think would probably be a, a surprise to everybody, including the scientists who happen to pick up the book, because the, the last part of it is actually about writing. And it seems to me that one of the first most interesting barriers of provincialism to break down for art history is, uh, is the barrier that is often exists, invisible one, of course, between the art history department and the literature department, the comparative literature department, the English department, the German department, and so on because there's such uh, a rich tradition in those departments of, of reading texts that we in art history are completely oblivious of. All we do is tell our students to write clearly, and that's so rudimentary. That's something Cicero didn't even do. It's <laughs> really sad, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very but sad. See, yes. But you see, yeah. there, there is a difference between, uh, between Europe and the U.S., because uh, although I, in the university I have been... Uh, working in uh, this this kind of of separation is not given, um, and so there, there are many many cooperation between uh, literary departments and art history. But it does it doesn't mean the stu- students are, are writing better. So exactly. Anyway, so the literary departments are concerned with reading more than with writing, right? So. It's very interesting to see, but it's a, it's it's a good point you you brought up, Jim, because uh, it remembers me of another point I wanted to brought up to bring up, which is this um, the question of method. And I think that the book is it was my concern to uh, to bring something to think about how our method as art historian, as an historian of science, um, as a a scientist uh, is about, right? And this methodical idea and this methodical uh, thread in the book is, I think, very important. It's very important because this this kind of comparison between, between different disciplines, but with different ways of thinking in different disciplines, most of all, in the chapter of about about writing, um, is thinking about why we are doing all that, and what's the, the final question in our seminar last time uh, to ask? Okay, now you're you're all, or rather, all are art historian. What do you think about your discipline now, after having tried to work with this book? And it's, I think it's, a, it's it's an important point if you say okay we are we are a gap, we have a gap between literary department and art history, so that's it's my hope that the book could bring up more thinking about what we are doing as art historian as art 
historian of science and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to give to give one um, another uh, another particular example, one of the another of the book's um, seven themes um, is called uh, thickets of representation. It's a term that I take from a from a, a historian of biology, uh, William Wimsatt, who used to teach at University of Chicago. Um, he studied things like. Um, the uh, diagrams that uh, scientists make of genes, of DNA, and so on, that we've all been seeing a ton of in the last year because of the COVID virus. Um, And he made the point that um, uh, certain structures are too complex to be shown with a single image. And so you need several different kinds of uh, representation, different visualizations, and also different imaging techniques used, made with different kinds of microscopes, that kind of thing. Um, And you need them all, and you can't put them together into a single image. And that turns out to be very widespread in science. We have several examples in the book uh, from different uh, fields, and yet completely unknown to art history. Um, And I I, I, I would almost like to say uh, those practices outnumber the kind of things you see in art history, that the closest you get in art history is, you know, when a painter leaves also a few sketches, and you could study the sketches along with the painting, and you can then make the case that you need to know the sketches and the painting in order to get the full idea. That would be an analogy. That's an analogy, but it's very limited. Most of the time, it's the Mona Lisa that speaks for the Mona Lisa, and then it's the be all and end all of that of itself. And there's a kind of essentialism with that, and a kind of simplification. So, to it's it's a it's a little bit like uh, discovering new worlds everywhere. This brave new world of of, uh, of multiple visualizations of objects that are that can't be shown in a single picture, um, and one last example of something that's that about interdisciplinarity. We have a section in the book also about animal vision, and for some people, for, I have a colleague who's one of them. For some people, that's just too little, too late. Like we need to give up the human, go on to the post-human. We should have started with animals. We could talk about animal vision, or for that matter, artificial intelligence and machine vision. We should start with start with prosthetics and move away from the human and all the rest of that. Well, we didn't we didn't do that, but we well, it, but it's an open door. Um, so wanted to make sure again that some specifics were in the book, not just the idea that you could start to think about animal vision, but some specifics of particular ways that some animal communities, um, you know, exist by virtue mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of vision, which immediately opens out the kind of, well, reveals the kind of simplicity of the uh, formulas that we love to use, like the Jacques Lacan's, you know, vision, which is with, you know, seeing is always being seen and so on. But but, you know, if you're a fish <laughs> that lives a thousand feet down in the ocean and there are several we'll see another way. fish with different kinds of eyes, then life suddenly gets much, much more complicated. So just to leave doors open um, so that people can, or windows, so people can look through them and see what's mm-hmm. out there, I think is the, was the main strategy in a lot of that. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that particular chapter on on animal seeing. I I wanted to make sure that we that we somehow talked about that in the, in the midst of all this, and I'm glad you you talked about that in terms of this this idea of that this book is partly about discovering new worlds, and that and that animal seeing in particular allows us to think about new worlds of visuality that I agree we should have long we should have long ago thought about this and theorized this it should be a part of our thinking um, as should uh, machine machine vision or machine learning and things like that um, I, th- I thought it might be a, a fun sort of way to begin moving towards a conclusion maybe you know we have about 10 minutes left to um, to ask you both what your maybe this is an unfair question but what your favorite chapter is in retrospect, whether to to write it, it was super fun, to research it, it was super fun, or it's just one that continues to just be sort of stuck in your in your mind. I have certain ones that have become my favorite, the animal vision chapter, certainly. I it's like I can't stop thinking about it. The Jim and Erna, whoever wrote it, I won't ask, talk about the vision. Um, or the the visual systems that the mantis shrimp has. And that blew my mind, the possibility that the colors that bees see are simply unimaginable to us. I just, it's like, I I can't move past it. For some people like that colleague I was just mentioning, that stuff is so old hat. Oh. So, oh yes, well, I get maybe I'm embarrassing myself by, by saying how no, moved I was just by that. But, 
I also really enjoyed the, there's a chapter called Looking at the Inside of Your Own Eyes that, that has a series of kind of experiments contained within it. You know, try this and, and do this with your eyeball and look, now you can see this. And I, same, I, I can't stop thinking about it. I think oh. this book planted little seeds in my mind and I imagine it will do that to many students and, and just general readers oh, who pick it up. Did you, did you make the experiments yourself? So I tried with I my students. I tried I with my students. What happened? So they look it. So, they, they, so. <laughs> no, something. You know, I, I'm ashamed to admit this too, but something about it scared me. Maybe as an art historian, my greatest fear is of losing my sight, or um, I, I just I would never want to become the the Beethoven of art history. So I, I'm very careful with my well, eyes. So and maybe what's, uh, but maybe what's scary about that kind of thing in the end is that things, the phenomenon in this case that, that are actually from the inside of your eye might turn out to be more interesting than the Mona Lisa. That's the really scary thing. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm terrified. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. <laughs> so, But it's beautiful, I think, about this, this one chapter that, that the students can experiment this, this kind of, of self-introspection, uh, which, which has a so a long historical um, background, right? As so the, this idea of after images and so on, and then you can you can bring them to to be interested in to, to get interested in, in this kind of historical of historical background by using this these self uh, experiments, so to speak, right? I think so, Erna. Which which was your favorite to write? Can I can I press you both, or or which is the oh, my- is there a single chapter that kind of lingers? You, I do have a favorite chapter. Since oh, you asked. okay. James, ready? <laughs> yeah, this would be, uh, and, and this may surprise you, Erna, because we never talked about it this way, like favorite chapters. Okay. But my favorite yeah, chapter no. is the my favorite is the last one. Though the the last chapter, which we call "Writing Through Images," it's the last of three chapters on writing. It's about uh, writers, twentieth century writers, the ones that we chose, um, who are who have uh, an investment in images and paintings, and and in some cases they're writing about paintings and other images. In some cases they're using them, like Sebald, the novelist who puts photographs uh, put photographs in his novels. Um, but it's very entangled this use because we're not in that chapter just talking about people who have actual photographs in their books, like Sebald, but we're talking about the the um, the interweaving of the, the visual and the verbal. Um, and the last section of the last chapter is on Proust, who has lots and lots of real paintings that he mentions in his, um, in his novel. Um, and in fact, there's a big um, expensive overpriced coffee table book of called something like Proust and images where someone went and photographed all the original paintings that Proust right. was doing. <laughs> but anyway, but <laughs> the reason why that's my favorite uh, is because you would never expect to end up there if you open a book called Visual Worlds Visual and you see Worlds, that it right. has to do with art history <laughs> and also science and things. You would never expect to end up in that spot. That's a, I, think, I think it's absolutely wonderful that we ended up there because that, that's the least, I think, the least predictable place to end up. Even, even if you include the inside of your own eye or thinking about how a mantis strip sees because, because those things are, as Aaron has said, they have histories. Um, the animal vision is a current interest, but the uh, the idea of entoptic phenomena, as they're called, things that you know, things you think you see from the inside of your eye, has a very long history. Um, uh, but but this subject doesn't seem, I think, immediately to be connected. Um, it's connectable. <laughs> you know, we connected it. <laughs> um, exactly. But so, so it's like you end in a end in a very unexpected place. That's why I like that one. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. What about you, Anna? Yeah, well, I, I, I also do like this one last, very last chapter because it was a sort of uh, uh, quintessence of uh, of this um, working between Jim and me. He he was interested in in experimental writing. I was interested in, in how. Uh, writers were were looking, and I think this uh, this chapter has grown as as the very top of our collaboration. And but I like the introduction. I love the introduction because it's a, it's a methodical path to follow. And I think um, I hoped that that our students are learning from the introduction and getting curious somehow. 
And oh, it, by the way, don't I, forget, yeah, you should absolutely. not forget, don't forget to ask us our least favorite chapter. I would like to answer that. <laughs> no, now I feel like no. this question was a little bit no. faster. No. I, 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 really, I genuinely want to know, and as a human being, you know, not, not necessarily as a scholar. And when I'm preparing these for these interviews, I try to think, you know, what kinds of questions do do just people want to, to ask you and, and wish they could? I mean, I, I have you on the line, so I have a responsibility beyond myself. Um, dare, dare I follow through it and, and ask you, which is your least favorite? I never even thought to, to, to denigrate any my, of the chapters. My, own, my own least favorite chapter is uh, it's in part two. It's chapter five called Staring and Peering, Glimpsing and Glancing. Because oh. we, were, we spent a long time we spent a long time pondering whether or not the gaze, as in the theory of the gaze, should be the model, the paradigm for looking in general, or should we use looking in the sense that Lacan and others do, or what should be our master metaphor, as they used to say. And we were both interested in specific kinds of seeing, so we ended up um, compressing those interests into this chapter. And I, I still think that's a very unsatisfactory chapter. I, I wouldn't take it out of the book. I mean, I, th I really think as a problem, it needs to be there. But there are ways that you could make the case that peering should be as important as gazing and that should have its own conferences in its own book. And the farther you go down toward, toward that road, the more you disintegrate our project <laughs> into a number of different separable subjects. So, so that chapter itself is a series of like shards and fragments pushed together into a chapter. Yes, um, but, but it's, it's, it's very important because it, it, it is the counterpart for of, of the other chapter called um, um, Styles of Looking, right? Which is one of those, uh, my, my student had said, one of those new concepts which has not been there before what what is this kind of styles of looking we de we defined in this the next part after the kinds of looking and so so that difference is very important so the, this kind of fragments are so um so important to think about what this, these kinds of looking are. And so then this bring, brings me to the one chapter I don't like so much because it's very didactical, which is um, the part about the gaze, in fact. Mm -hmm. yep. but, uh, but it's important to, to have it there. Everyone expects it, yeah. This distinction between kinds of looking and styles of looking, we wish that we could have thought of something that was a better mnemonic, but was it kinds of looking in this context that where we're talking now means things like peering and glancing, glimpsing if they're different from staring and so on. Styles means, in our book, um, different ways of looking when you apply to different kinds of things. Like you're looking at a sunset, there's a style of looking at a sunset. But, you know, just English doesn't have the words that have the bite that we would need to really make that memorable. But, but, mm -hmm. uh, but st under the heading of styles of looking, we have a chapter, for example, looking at advertisements. Because you, you certainly, there's a different form of looking. It's another, another not so memorable way of putting it that applies to advertisements that don't apply to sunsets and so on. So it's, it's an important issue. It's interesting to hear you both say that, and I, I should admit that looking at advertisements was also one of my favorites. You have a text box in that chapter about uh, eye tracking and dwell time, which now has totally messed up my, my ability to teach because all I'm thinking about is where are they looking? Are they looking the same place I'm looking? How long are they looking there? I, I just, again, it's it seems so so much like something I should have known before. and. Because I advertisers also, who manipulate our consciousness know it very well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, it was the perfect spot for that for that text box to be. So I was I was I'm, I'm I don't have any qualms about reading those. Maybe I haven't reached the, the the point in my scholarly life where I think I'm beyond reading the text box. The, each one was just such a, a juicy morsel and. I'll admit that the chapter uh, staring and peering, glimpsing and glancing had one of my most frustrated with you both moments. Um, it's a silly thing, but maybe I'll just, again, just putting teasers out for listeners to, to pick up this book. But you talk in that chapter about this robotic exploration of the narrow tunnels inside oh, yeah. the great pyramid of, I don't know if I'm saying it right, Heops maybe in Khufu. Um, and you you choose not to reproduce once they got the robotic arm with the camera all the way inside this space that hasn't been seen in 4,500 years, which of course I'm like, I'm gonna turn the page, I can't wait to see it. And you say, we're not gonna reproduce it. 
And I totally understood why you made such a succinct good case for we're not going to do it. And I've, I don't think I'll ever be able to bring myself to Google it, though I know it's right there. I could just Google it, I imagine it, and, and be able to see inside there. But I don't know, you both just made so many fascinating choices in this book that, that are just as fun as Erna was saying to kind of analyze the book as a book, as a piece of writing, as to absorb the information within it. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I, I do want to ask you the kind of traditional she last question. She wants to ask us what the camera saw. No, <laughs> so, no, I'm not. No, After my initial frustration, I've resigned no, myself that this is an image I'm never going to see. I don't, no, it there's a map. Contract, it says in our contract, we can't answer that. Oh, really? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I desperately want to ask you both what you're working on now or next. Um, if you could just briefly say what projects have entered your, your sphere and, and what the public who have become interested in your work can look forward to. Erna, do you want to go first here at the end uh, as, yes. as we it's, it's not very much because the one book you mentioned, the visualization beyond um, beyond uh, infographic, is, is it just to appear? So um, is is just um, um, forthcoming? So it's the it's the next I will I will finish. But I'm looking for another form of looking. Uh, trying to set up a theory of landscape photography in the sense of how we look at, photog at landscapes through the medium of photography and something like a sort of instrumental uh, history of vision with the, the idea there are periods which can be described with uh, optical drawing devices, which are sort of metaphor for a certain period of seeing in art and in science and related to images. Mm. And the other two projects I'm looking for at the moment. Okay. Keep an eye out. Jim, what about you? Yeah, I don't, well, this is not actually a project yet, but it's, a, it's an appropriate thing to mention at the end here because I've, I've, I'm, I've got one toe in the water of another Oxford Press textbook project. Um, um, this one is just at the stage of just talking. I just have a group of people I'm talking to, but and talking with about it. But the idea would be um, to write a next generation world art history textbook, which would take other cultures seriously instead of presenting them. <laughs> instead of instead of using um, words from Greek and Latin roots like space and time, we would use as much as possible words from other cultures, not translated. Um, and to present other cultures in their own words. It, it's an extension of something we tried in this, uh, in this book where we have a couple of words that are, um, that are untranslated, um, which we tried, non-European terms we call them, which we, which we put in in a couple of places just, just because I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to make an entirely uh, monolingual textbook, yet another European, you know, entire, exclusively European textbook. So, this project is, is really just in the talking stages. And if it works, it might be as um, difficult to sell as this textbook of, of Aaron's and mine in, in the sense that it really would create completely alien histories, alien in the sense of unrecognizable their history, the, the chapters on Japan and China and so on in this book would have a completely different vocabulary and would look at different objects than people expect. So don't know what will happen to that, but that's what's going on at the moment. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that at the end, too. We never did talk about the, the way that you have woven that idea. It pops up, you know, throughout the book in terms of these, as you call them, non-European terms for uh, the way that that might open up the field in, in new ways. So those, they both, all the things you're working on just sound like great projects. And I really enjoyed talking to both of you about your book today. I think it stands to make a significant contribution to discourses surrounding visuality, both in art history and really well beyond it. My name is Allison Lee, and you've been listening to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been talking to James Elkins and Erna Fiorentini about their new book, Visual Worlds, Looking, Images, Visual Disciplines. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>